When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until four, so. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to HelpMyGamblingProblem.org for free confidential services. What's up, Open Floor Globe? I'm your host, Michael the Pod Pina, and I'm joined today on the other line by my good friend, Sports Illustrated staff writer, Rohan Nadkarni. Rohan, what is up, my man? How was your weekend? Pretty good, Michael. Uh, I can't complain. We were just talking before the show started about how we're both sandwich appreciators. I had a really good sandwich over the weekend. I am. I booked my return ticket to Phoenix, and I feel like I'm going in with a plan this time. I, I plan on buying several undershirts that I can just cycle through throughout my, my four days there this time. Uh, I, I think that I've, I'm now in a better mental state to deal with the Phoenix heat than I was my first rodeo. Okay, so before we get into NBA action, the finals are underway. It's excellent. What What is your favorite or what is your go-to sandwich? So I got to say, ever since moving to California, something you get here a lot is the veggie sandwich. And it sounds a little underwhelming at first. I'm underwhelmed. Listen, the combination of avocado, sprouts, cheese, the crispness of a cool cucumber... And, you know, maybe a nice aioli on there. It's very refreshing on a hot summer day. You know, put that thing on some good sourdough. I'm telling you, you're in business. You don't feel weighed down after. You feel like you're ready to attack the day. You know, normally I'm eating big Italian hoagies and, and things of that nature. You know, yeah. those are Those are really put you to sleep for a couple hours. But the California veggie sandwich, if you really want to power yourself through a day, I highly recommend it. I was about to say, well, first of all, when I eat a sandwich, I like to be full. Um, I don't know about you. Uh, but Italian subs are the way to go, so I'm glad you gave them a quick shout. Um, well, you can't, no one can compete with an Italian sub. 
No one. No, it's undefeated. No. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the Giannis Antetokounmpo of sandwiches. Uh, so, like I said, we have a lot to get to on today's show. But first, I want to say thanks to all of our listeners out there for the wonderful emails that keep pouring in. Uh, please keep them coming to openfloormail at gmail.com. That's openfloormail at gmail.com. Uh, Rohan, later on in today's show, to honor Giannis Antetokounmpo's complete and utter evisceration of the Phoenix Suns over the last two games, we're going to list our top five finals performances that we've ever seen in our lives. And this is this is a little similar to what we and Chris did earlier after uh, after KD's Game 5 in the second round, but we're going to limit it to just the finals here. So hopefully we don't have too much overlap. I know that... Um, I told you before we started recording that you're only allowed to have one Mario Chalmers game on there. So everyone, please stay tuned to see if uh, I'm going to need some time to redo my list. I'm going to need some time to redo my list. Okay, okay. Spo- spoiler alert. Um, but before we do that, uh, first we obviously need to talk about Game Three of the Finals, which was last night. It was a game the Bucks won. I'd say pretty handily, a 20-point margin. Um, Giannis was spectacular. Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton came to play. thought home court certainly was a factor. Devin Booker had one of his worst games of the entire postseason. Uh, And to kind of guide us through everything that we learned in that game and everything that we're going to take forward as the series progresses, Rohan, I have uh, a few questions for you. Uh, that I outlined um, beforehand for you to get prepared. Hopefully you weren't, um, you know, snacking on too many of those veggie sandwiches and you got around (laughs) to answering these questions. But my first one for you, Rohan, is just what was the most meaningful stat that you saw just looking through the box or looking through all the advanced metrics that we have at our our disposal? Um, What's the most meaningful stat from game three that you saw that really kind of enlightened you about what's happening in this series? I mean, there are really a lot of ways to go uh, with this question, a lot of different directions. I think you bring up a good point. Like what you can look at an analytic, you can look at whatever. I'm looking at a very basic stat for this one, and that's minutes played for DeAndre Ayton. Uh, It's only 24 minutes played in game three. And it was the first time all playoffs it felt like DeAndre Ayton's been in foul trouble, meaningful foul trouble. And I just think it completely threw off the Suns' rotation. I'm not saying that this is perhaps maybe the number one reason they lost. But I think this is a major factor going forward in this series. Obviously, Dario Sarge tore his ACL um, in the first game. He's not coming back this series. They cannot play Frank Kaminsky in the finals. Uh, Kaminsky was getting killed when he was on the floor. It was, you know, chicken souvlaki alert for Giannis Antetokounmpo when Frank Kaminsky was in the game. You know, it was chicken shawarma alert, chicken tikka alert, whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it. it. You can't play Frank Kaminsky in these finals. Aiton only being able to play 24 minutes. He played 42 in game two. That's incredible for a center, especially one being asked to do as much as he is, defending Giannis, setting all those screens on every single possession, of rolling hard to the rim. He is a, a high-energy game, and the Suns are asking him to do a lot, and I think we saw that bear out a little bit um, in game three because they don't have backup options at center. It's either Kaminsky, it's some combination of Jay Crowder, Cam Johnson, and Torrey Craig, soaking up those backup five minutes. The Bucks are already one of the bigger front court teams in the NBA. That's whether they quote-unquote go small with Giannis at the five or not. I don't think they can afford another eight and foul trouble game, but the problem is Giannis is going to be attacking him every single time down the floor. 
That's yeah. I mean, I, I could have predicted that you were going to go in this direction. I mean, it was it was <laughs> wow, the story wow. of no, it's that's no shots. Um, I mean, it was the big takeaway, right? This guy only plays twenty five minutes. He's excellent when he's on the court. He was keeping them alive offensively in the early going in a really difficult environment. And I thought you kind of smacked the nail on the head with you know discussing just the the lack of depth that Phoenix has in their front court. And I don't know where you go to stop or even try to begin to stop or slow down Giannis if you don't have DeAndre Ayton on the court. There's really no, like, there's no plan B beyond Jay Crowder. And, like, Giannis in single coverage versus Jay Crowder is just, I mean, you you laid out all of the the chicken menu items there (laughs) and... It's it's the same with with Jay. It's nothing to take away from him. Giannis is just Giannis. It's it's the same with Mikael Bridges. It's the same with Cam Johnson. If you switch Devin Booker onto him, he's just gonna cook that matchup and get to the post and get to those little turnarounds. When when it's, Aiton's not in the game, it, it literally has to turn into like a middle school game where you're just double teaming the biggest guy on the floor. As soon as he gets the ball, I don't think they can be precious about it. I think they have to send a double. And they have to double hard, and they have to scramble. I, I know Milwaukee or Phoenix. It, it's pretty good during the regular season to kind of staying out of those crazy scramble situations. Uh, that's kind of always been the beauty of their defense, I think. But that's what it's going to take. I don't. I don't know what you can do short of you have to send a hard double at him. Giannis has been. I don't remember him ever being this effective catching the ball like a few feet off the block, facing up. And it it just feels like he's gotten so much better at that situation over the course of these playoffs. He has to be doubled in those scenarios now. He's it's really tough to double him because especially when they go small and you've got all those shooters around and he doesn't you know, he's not like a laborious back to the basket, I'm gonna take five dribbles here and back it's like not how he posts up. So it's really difficult. He can survey. He's a really good passer. He can survey the defense. And, like, frankly, Phoenix was, I mean, they were pretty desperate. I mean, they went to the zone throughout game three. You know, as, as, once Giannis kind of figured out how to break that, you know, he would just pierce the top layer. And then uh, either Bobby Porters or Pat Connaughton or whoever would just cut baseline. And he'd find them on dump-offs or he'd hit his little floater. Or it's just... I don't know what the answer is to stop this guy. It's not like he was getting all of his buckets in transition either, although he he did have success in transition. A lot of it was, um, you know, rolling to the basket screen and rolls, hard dives. Um, he's just, I, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about him in this episode for good reason. I mean, when he's hitting his free throws, there's nothing you can do. The other option, I think, is you single cover him with someone like Crowder, or maybe save Aiton. And just try to keep everyone else from going off. I mean, that's also easier said than done. But we're gonna if that happens, we're literally gonna get like a sixty-five point finals game. Honestly, especially if he's making the free throws, and he looked very comfortable at the yeah. free throw line, which was a huge factor. I think thirteen for seventeen um, in the game, which is very significant. Um, so my stat, I'm gonna go a little bit on the negative side, also with Phoenix, and according to NBA.com. Devin Booker was three for 12 on uncontested shots in game three. 
I went back and I watched the film, and I don't know how some of those were labeled uncontested. <laughs> I, don't, I like I it's it they weren't they were pretty it's pretty good defense that this guy's facing after the performance that he had in game two, where his shot making I thought was the big difference in that game. Um, but he did have a, a few jumpers literally go in and out of the basket. He missed a couple of free throws. Um, he took advantage of some of the, the you know, when Milwaukee's small, they want to switch. And Giannis is a little delayed in his reaction in stepping up into the switch. So Booker had some, some daylight and he hit some shots that way. But I, I just think that, like, I'm highlighting this stat because if Devin Booker is not your leading scorer in the series decisively, and no disrespect to Chris Paul, I just I just think if Devin Booker is not your leading scorer, you're not going to win the series. And I'm not going to overreact to one game and say that they've solved Devin Booker or anything like that, but I don't anticipate him getting to the free throw line like he did in game one. And some of the shots that he hit, I know he's a superstar offensive player. Some of the shots I, he hit in game two were I, He just, hit like some step backs over Brooke Lopez that I'm like, Milwaukee has to live with those shots. I think you're onto something there. He was hitting some really tough shots in game two that I, it's not that he can't hit those shots. It's that those are the least reliable shots in the game. That if you're Milwaukee, those are the ones you're going to live with. Right. It's it's an unsustainable diet, even though that's what he generally lives on. And so I, I just got to commit. No, go ahead. Well, you mentioned he can't. You, you're not sure he's going to get to the line like he did in game one. I believe he didn't shoot a single free throw last night. I don't know if there's some aspect of his game where maybe right now he's a little bit more tentative after breaking his nose about, you know, driving hard in the paint, et cetera, trying to draw contact. There has to be a midpoint, though. I, I think he shot something like 16 free throws, or he shot a lot of free throws in game one. He has to get to the line somewhat to get a, get himself going a little bit uh, in the next game if that jumper's not falling. Yeah, he was three for five from the free throw line in, in game three. But, right, but you got to get there a little bit more often yeah. if you are. And that's just not necessarily his game. His game is from the mid range. And um, I thought that. The Bucks did just a tremendous job, again, defensively against him. But I expect him to bounce back, and that should be a reason why people who are bullish on the Suns continue to be because he's a great offensive player, and he's not going to score 10 points. Um, again, well, one would think. Going one forward. thing I'll just throw out there in terms of the NBA.com uncontested shots. Yep. I think we talked about this a tiny bit before the series. The quote-unquote like soft contest or uncontested or whatever you want to call it, just looks a lot different when it's Milwaukee compared to other teams because of the length they have in the front court, specifically their guys who drop or switch and pick and rolls, whether it's Giannis or Brooke Lopez. If I'm shooting as a point guard from the mid-range, I'm less comfortable shooting against Brooke Lopez than most other centers in the league in drop because of his length. Um, because of oftentimes he does have good position, even though he's always getting killed. So... I just think that's something to note, too. It's like Milwaukee can make you uncomfortable even when players are seemingly getting the shots they want. Right. Like I said earlier, like the Giannis delay, the drop switch type of hybrid that he does where he's not really sure and then he has to step up and contest. It's still Giannis running at you. <laughs> yeah. Like I would go to the bathroom in my pants if I was yeah. in that situation. Chris, he's, yeah. Chris Paul hit like a crazy, you know, mid-range over Giannis from the baseline in that game and 
the announcers were rightfully like it's a big time shot. Yeah, I mean, even for Chris Ball, it's not easy shooting over those dudes. I have no idea how he hit that shot, and I wrote in my notes that it's just too hard sledding for the Phoenix yeah. Suns if these are the shots that CP is getting. That's why I think that Booker needs to be the leading scorer, and it's no coincidence that he struggled and it was a blowout. It's just he's a critical ingredient. Um, the other stat I have, which is kind of tied to yours, I just want to mention really quickly, um, and I wrote about this on the site last week, uh, all about Phoenix's starting five, which is the most used or most played uh, five-man unit in the NBA during the regular season and in the playoffs. Uh, that unit only played eight minutes in Game 3 because of Aiton's foul trouble, obviously. And that unit was so excellent in Game 1, playing 23 minutes, even better in Game 2, playing 30 minutes. And, I mean, you talk about the Saric injury, you talk about Torrey Craig, who looked okay um, coming back from what I think a lot of us thought could have been another ACL injury for the Phoenix Suns. Um, They're just not very deep as a basketball team, and we're going to get a little bit into their depth later with some of these Um, questions. But, but yeah, the starting five is critical. Go ahead. Can I throw one stat to keep an eye on moving forward? Yes, please. I think Chris Paul has something like 10 turnovers in the last two games combined. I think he had uh, he's had six and four. I, I, I meant to write this down. I don't remember the order. That's pretty shocking for Chris Paul. I mean, you know, we were talking about his closeout game against the Clippers where I think he had maybe one or two. Like, he's famous for limiting his turnovers. That's a lot of turnovers for him in a two-game stretch. And I think it just speaks to how the Bucks, even though it doesn't look like it sometimes, are making them a little bit more uncomfortable, making them work a little bit more. What reminded me of that stat was you brought up Torrey Craig. There was a play in the game last night where Torrey Craig's on the right wing and Chris Paul throws a pass behind him and Torrey Craig like kind of lays out for it. And I'm like, Chris, you can't do that to a man on a bad knee, all right? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was a, that's a really good point. And, and you were, you're spot on with your photographic memory here. Six <laughs> turnovers in game two and four last night for CP. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that that turnover was like, was it CP getting caught in midair? Was yeah. it he thought Tory Craig was supposed to shake up in that situation? I don't know. Um, but you're right. Like, that's one of the, the huge reasons for Phoenix's offensive success is they don't turn the ball Mm -hmm. over. And and Milwaukee has been beating them in that department for the entire series, which is uh, obviously very important. Um, Okay. So what did the Bucks do well or different? Do you think Rohan to kind of get the W here? The first two games I thought of the series were pretty competitive and the margins, I think were 10 points in each one, but you know, I thought that the Bucks could have honestly won, especially game two. I thought the, the Bucks could have won either game. They were in it till the end, and then game three is a blowout. So did you see anything different in, in game three from game two or from game one that sort of stood out to you that is, you know, that gives confidence in, in Milwaukee continuing on and, and repeating this type of performance? I mean, I think the big thing is getting valuable performances from the supporting cast, right? I mean... Bobby Portis went from, you know, getting cooked in game one in Phoenix to borderline unplayable in game two to giving them huge energy, mic'd up minutes in game three and getting all the love from the broadcast. Drew Holiday went from, you know, Eric Bledsoe to Drew Holiday over the course of one game. And I sometimes I, I think it's that simple, you know. It's so easy to overreact to playoff games, and I'm with you. I think this series, even though it was 2-0, was a lot 
closer than the scores would have suggested. And there were just a lot of things that I, it sounds so cliche, but so many things in games one and two that could have gone either way. If Milwaukee makes a couple more threes in game two and Phoenix misses a couple of Drew Holiday is a good shooting game, etc. I just have the fact that Milwaukee had other people step up besides Giannis. I mean, Giannis's numbers in game three were, I think he had a few more assists, like nearly identical to what he did in game two, um, at least in terms of scoring. The fact that he finally got some help, I thought to me that was the biggest quote-unquote adjustment. They just finally had other guys have efficient shooting nights, make an impact, leave an imprint on the game, and I thought that made the difference. Yeah, when Drew Holiday looks like an all-star versus uh, something closer on that spectrum to what Eric Bledsoe has given them in the postseason the last couple of years, it's just a different basketball team. And I thought Drew's shot selection was a little more... Tempered, although, you know, some of the threes that he did hit. He, he, he has a heat check, like, vibe to yeah. him that I, like, is a little surprising at times. Yeah, it, it's like he wants to get those shots early in the shot clock. I think they're easier for him. And sometimes when they don't fall, it's just like, what are you doing? Why didn't you settle into the offense? And when they do fall, it's like, go get him, slugger. <laughs> you're, like, you're, uh, you're unstoppable. I mean, he hit that when they cut it to four I think it was in the second half after Cam Johnson exploded um Drew Holiday just like starts raining threes all of a sudden and there's step backs and there's um you know they duck under and he's just like not hesitating to 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 pull up and knock them down so you know when him and Chris Middleton combined to go eight for 17 from behind the three-point line as opposed to like three for 27 or whatever they were (laughs) earlier in the series uh, that's just a significant a significant benefit and a significant boon uh, to the Bucks, And also, you know, you mentioned Bobby Portis at the top. Bobby Portis, I thought, played uh, excellent basketball in these were his first real consistent minutes, I thought, of the series. And you were right to point out that he did get cooked by CP along with everybody else who was switching on to CP in game one. And the Bucks just like stopped switching with their big men. And I think that that is one of the biggest adjustments um, post game one in this entire series. And Bobby Portis is either trapping and recovering, he's hedging and recovering, or he's dropping and he's trying to stay up to touch as close as he can without giving up a wide open shot. And it's completely different from the switches that left him so vulnerable and left Milwaukee's big, so vulnerable. I I do think it's, it's interesting that you brought up the, the hedge and recover bit because they were kind of like, let's live with some Jay Crowder shots and Jay Crowder to his credit hit, had one of those games where he had like the best shooting night of his life. But at the same time, Chris Paul and Devin Booker were slowed down a little bit. And I think that's a trade off you have to make. I think you have to make and I would much rather live with the Jay Crowder shooting night than Devin Booker and Chris Paul dictating the matchups that they want. Yeah, so I think besides like the defensive adjustment, and from game three and two, there wasn't much of a defensive adjustment as opposed to games one. I thought game one where they were switching everything, mm-hmm. um, and I just didn't. We talked about that as on our preview. Like I just didn't really understand why they would do that because of just what it allowed, what it forces them to give up mm-hmm. in a lot of different matchups. Um, so I thought that the, the defense was cleaned up. Um, as I wrote uh, in my recap after game two, I thought that the defensive strategy would give them a, a chance going forward, and they stuck to it the, in the Bucks, game three. They were great. 
the Bucks seemed, I wouldn't say confident after game two, but I think they all recognized, you know, I think Connaughton brought it up, Bud brought it up, even Drew did after game two. They were, I think, happy with the defensive strategy. I think they all mentioned that they overhelped. That was the word they used off the three-point shooters. Uh-huh. And I think they did a better job in game three of, uh, you know, finding the balance between, you know, playing the coverage they wanted to, but not, you know, cheating too much off the corners, et cetera. I'm not saying that is what entirely contributed to Phoenix's poor shooting night from three, but the Bucks, I think something clicked for them in game two in terms of how they wanted to defend Phoenix. No, that's a great point. I mean, they cleaned up a lot of that in game three with regards mm-hmm. to helping off the corners. I think the Suns, the Suns had like, I don't even know, they had like 10 first half well, corner three attempts. I, I, remember, I don't remember what point this was in game two now. All I can remember about Phoenix is people counting and how hot it was. But <laughs> there was a play where Devin Booker drove baseline and, you know, Chris Middleton more or less had him stopped. I believe he was the primary defender. You know, has he's effectively double-teaming Devin Booker with the baseline as a second defender. Mm-hmm. And whoever's guarding the corner just runs over, like runs over to help. And it's like a classic situation of what not to do. And, the you know, Devin Booker, the, the man who's now open in the corner, is wide open right in front of him. And he, and he hits him, hits Bridges for a three. And I, I just thought that was a, a text like the – Glaring example of how Milwaukee, I think, got you know overreacted to game one in a sense where they were like, well, we're definitely not letting Devin and Chris beat us. And, you know, running off guys in the corners for someone who's basically trapped against the baseline, picked up his dribble. Um, th- that's the kind of stuff they didn't do anything of in game three. Yeah, absolutely. So only three corner three attempts. Um, according to cleaning the glass, which does not include garbage time. So there might have been one or maybe two more near the end of the game. But that's just, I mean, that's just like much better discipline by the Bucks defense. And I think beyond Giannis, the Bucks defense has been the MVP so far for Milwaukee and it's their identity as a basketball team. So it's good so, to see them kind of, w- no, go ahead. Was that your answer to this question, the defense? Well, my answer to this question is like, so much of it is tight. Like, I don't think that there were adjustments. I just think that Aiton got into foul trouble. Yeah. And when sometimes Aiton gets into the, Sometimes foul, the other team plays better, too, you know? it's That is true. Yeah. I mean, you, you when you said that Drew... The, the difference is Drew and Middleton a little bit less so, but Middleton was at least hitting some threes and looking more confident offensively. Like, you don't need to make a seismic adjustment, but when Aiton goes out and Phoenix is small and Phoenix has to go zone and... They're just getting destroyed on the offensive glass. And one of the the, the biggest reasons why Milwaukee was able to beat Atlanta in those last two games without Giannis is they just, like, completely bullied them on the offensive glass and created all these second-chance opportunities. So Bobby Portis was an absolute animal. Um, One of his offensive rebounds led to an immediate kickout to Drew for a three when the game started to get close. Um Brooke Lopez is obviously when he's in there, he's very effective on the glass. And Giannis, uh, as the when Giannis is playing the five, I mean, he's just like a couple of his and ones are just like I'm gonna reach over your shoulders here, grab the ball, and then just go right back up. And I don't really know what you do to stop that. So Aiton getting in foul trouble just threw all of the schemes and all everything that Phoenix wants to do out of whack. Um, you combine that with. 
you know, the Suns go nine for 31 from the three point line after going 20 for 40 in game two. I didn't think that 20 for 40 was replicable uh, at any other point in the series. I don't expect to see it again. And so how can Phoenix kind of create more opportunities for itself if they're getting beat so bad on the glass? Um, If they're continuing, continuing to turn it over, as you said, with CP, 10 turnovers in two games and Drew Holiday being on CP, picking him up full court basically the entire game and doing a tremendous job with that. Uh, just, I think that those were the closest things to adjustments that I can see from that game. Do you think anyone has a better mean mug than Giannis? Like when he gets that and one, he's flexing. Does anyone have a better mean mug than him right now? Mm, that's a great question. I love... Bobby Portis's reaction to just about <laughs> okay, everything okay. he does on a basketball court. Um, I mean, Crazy Eyes is my favorite nickname. Well, I think Bobby Portis favorite. looks like a movie character is the thing. It's like he's uh, – I, I don't even know where to begin. He he just looks like someone playing a role in a movie of like the character who's like, oh, that's old Crazy Eyes Portis. Like – He's he's the guy who punched a teammate one time. Like it sounds like the person in like a heist movie almost, and they're recruiting him. And it's like you got to have crazy eyes. And it's like, didn't he punch someone in the last job he was on? And it's like, yeah, but he's crazy eyes. Like that's Bobby Portis right now. So yes, Bobby Portis has been absolutely integral. <laughs> um. <laughs> Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years. Have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your life sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Ro, before I ask you the next question that I have, uh, I just want to ro- remind our listeners who are also wonderful to uh, continue to, to keep those emails coming in. Um, openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Um, the next question I have is a pretty simple one, but I went in a pretty strange direction with it. But who has impressed you the most in this series so far? And I, if you say Giannis, I'm going to reach through this Zoom call and slap you. But it's okay if also if you say Giannis. How, I, how is the answer anyone but Giannis is my question. It's like Think outside this, the box. Come no, on. no. When you put this question on here, I was like, Mike's going to come up with some like – he he came up with an answer to this question before he even came up with the question where he's like, I'm going to impress all my NBA nerd friends tomorrow on the pod with this absurd answer I come up with. The man's put up back-to-back 40-point games in the NBA Finals. He's putting up Shaq in 2,000 numbers, and you're going to come up with someone else. So no, 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 no. We all know what the answer is. Let's go through this exercise where you want to come up with some answer that's wrong, but well, somehow okay, proves how okay. smart you are. So let's Here's hear the deal. Let's, this, You're just setting yourself up, so let's hear your answer. Here's the deal. So... The word impressed is key in this sentence. Oh, with Giannis, boy. Oh, I, boy. I am with Giannis, I'm obviously impressed that would be a word to use, but my expectations for Giannis, <laughs> oh, a two time MVP, are very oh, high. Gosh. It's not a, a stunning development to see him dominate the Phoenix Suns as he has, even after once I knew he was going and gonna be healthy after game one, um, I'm not like, you know, super shocked by everything that he, he's oh doing. He's goodness. played great basketball. So, I want you to bend your knee in the direction that Giannis did. I don't. And, I'm not going to And that, And so. see if you can go walk to grab your coffee 10 days later, later, let alone play an NBA game. I'm never walking again in my life <laughs> if that happens. Let me tell you that right now. Um, okay, so just I, I guess you can take your headphones off, Ro, because I'm just going to speak to all the Here nerds out there Here with my answer. Um, I'm going Cam Johnson. With this, um, Cam Johnson has been just, I, I mean, what are you, like, he, he's leaving me speechless literally right now as I'm trying to speak. Um, he played 30 minutes in game three, was forced into those extra minutes because of Aiton's um, foul trouble. And, I mean, you have the fact that he basically never misses any shot from anywhere on the floor. He dunked on pj tucker with i like i I had no idea he was even able to every every photo i've seen of that dunk makes me wince as someone who like loved pj tucker back when he played on the suns (laughs) every i'm like oh that's tough (laughs) it it was i mean they they double it was really weird because they double the ball out of CP's hands like in the backcourt so CP just gives it up to Cam Johnson who inbounded it to him and he just sprints the length like how many guys would do that like the boldness the confidence like I was not he's had a very good playoff run for sure Um, but I was not anticipating Cam Johnson being as just one with himself and willing to take off from the dotted line and try to cram on PJ Tucker in the NBA finals, like on the road that's in the third quarter. It's, it was ridiculous. In a big moment, in a big moment. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. It made, I think everybody's brain broke 
but challenged even though you know you i I thought when i watched it live i was like oh pj had to have gotten there and then i thought it was gonna be called a charge i thought it was gonna be called a charge i thought the rest of a good job based on perception yeah Yeah. um then you watch the replay and he's clearly moving and there's absolutely Mm -hmm. no chance you're gonna take that dunk away from somebody um, he also you know, had that Julia serving reverse thought, layup in transition. I thought that was, I, thought I was going to be more angry at this pick than I am, but it's not a bad answer. Thank you. It's all about expectations. I'm a man I, who's, you know, I don't disagree. I understand relative yeah. to expectations. He's been incredible. I also think if there was one thing that people maybe had questions about, it's like defensively how someone like Cam Johnson is going to hold up in this series. Now, granted, he was on the floor in that third quarter where, uh, the Bucks went on a bit of a run. I do think that had more to do with Aiton being off the floor than than Johnson being on. Uh, yeah, I just think he's been a really, really well-rounded player. It's funny. The Suns have somehow cornered the market on guys that are not quite stars, but also more than just 3 and D players, where it's like Bridges and Johnson can both put the ball on the floor. Uh, they can both run the break. Like These aren't guys who you just plant in the corner and space the floor with. They can do more stuff. So, like you said, if CP is getting double teamed in the backcourt, you can give the ball to Cam Johnson, and he can do more than just give it right back to a guard and, and sprint to a corner. That I do think has been pretty impressive. Right, and I don't know. I just I tweeted this out last night during the game, but the Kobe White um, reaction to Cam getting drafted when he did. Uh, it just never gets old in a situation like this where everything Cam Johnson's doing, I remember that draft night and the, res- the, the grades, the draft night instant reaction grades were not all kind, F. not kind, were to all Phoenix. F right. And it's just like James Jones smarter than everyone, I guess. Um, I, I'm always taking a chance on like someone between like the height of six, six and six, nine who, doesn't have like Can a shoot broken threes. shooting form. Yeah, exactly. Like if that's where I'm going to take a reach, take a swing, it's on those kinds of players because even if they turn out to be Tory Craig, they can play in a finals game. Right. If you draft a, a bunch of Tory Craigs with lottery picks, you're going to get fired, bro. I hate to break it to you, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean late lottery, late lottery. I mean, would you rather sure. have Romeo would you rather have Romeo Langford or Tory Craig? I would. Hey, Romeo's going to the Hall of Fame, but that's a different <laughs> discussion for a different day. Um, and you know, real quick before we spend too much time on Cam Johnson, he's also just like a really smart player. All those flash cuts he makes from the weak side, that high low assist he had to Aiton when they were fronting him in the post, and he came out of nowhere. Like not every wing who's in his second or third year, or whatever it is, is going to make that type of play. So. The Suns are in a really interesting position, and again, this is a different conversation for a different day, but they're going to have to pay Mikael Bridges. At some point, Like you're going to have to pay Cam Johnson too, and it's a little too soon to say he's going to earn $100 million, but I would not be surprised if he earned $100 million. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, is there anyone else that it impressed you besides your your extremely vanilla pick of Giannis Antetokounmpo? Oh, sorry, I picked the dude putting up a historic finals in his first finals performance <laughs> on a knee that looked like a claymation, you know, mistake, you know, not even two weeks ago. So sorry if that one was obvious that he was going to put up back to back forty point games. Yeah, um, we all saw it coming. Yeah, you know. <laughs> No, I'm not gonna. I was about to make an like a an argument for Pat Connaughton as like 
No, hey, go for it, please. Here's all I'll great. say about Connison. I thought he had like he was the second best buck in game two. He played thirty minutes in game three. Hit his threes. Yep. The fact that he's not like a disaster when he's on the floor. And I'm not saying Connison's a bad player, only that he's been thrust into a bigger role after the injury to DiVincenzo. Like Connaughton, you could make an argument needs to be playing over PJ Tucker in the starting lineup. Um, you know, I just think he's been like really, really solid for them in moments where they just need someone to be solid. They just need someone to not be a minus, and I think he's given that to them, and it's it's been impressive. Yeah, I like I, I like Pat in his role coming off the bench because. It's a little different going small with PJ off the bench, I think, just because his three-point shot is not as feared as Connaughton's is, and Connaughton is hitting his threes right now. So I, I value also PJ Tucker's defense on, I guess he was he was primarily guarding Devin Booker from the jump, which is pretty interesting, and they, they let Chris Middleton just stick to Mikhail Bridges. Um, but no, Pat Connaughton's been great. And he's giving you those hustle plays. He's drawing those fouls where he gets elbowed in the face twice a game. Those are <laughs> those are those aren't nothing. Like you need guys like that to do to to take that type of physical punishment if you want to win the championship. So Pat Compton's played great. <laughs> you need a punching bag if you're going to win. The you final. need a literal punching bag. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So uh, this kind of leads me into my next question. Which is what I guess, like, what are you looking most forward to um, as, you know, we we head into Wednesday's game for just like what adjustment, what matchup, what player, just whatever you can think of. Just what what about this series and everything you saw so far leads you to get excited about something happening in game four and beyond? First of all, I think game four is going to be epic. I mean, man, these are the kinds of games that Mm -hmm. even if it's like. It's just going to be one of those games where both teams are desperate. And you can't fake that in the playoffs. Like, I don't think the Suns were a desperate team in Game 3. But this Game 4 is massive, massive, massive for both sides. And I think that the the focus is just going to be ratcheted up, and I'm really excited for it. I'm most curious to see if Monty Williams, like, does anything. Kind of sounds too extreme. But the Suns, I think, have been the team throughout the playoffs that have not – they've tinkered the least. Like you mentioned, they play their starting lineup a ton. They do what they do. They want to dictate terms, etc. It feels like every other team during the playoffs has those moments where it's like, are we going to play big? Are we going to play small? What rotation change are we going to make? Etc. Etc. I want to see if Monty Williams feels the need to make a switch, to figure out a new kind of way to defend Giannis, or is he going to be like – this is what got us here. I'm not rocking the boat at all. I mean, even Bud, who constantly gets painted as the most stubborn coach in the NBA, has tried so many things during this postseason. And it feels like the Suns have avoided that. They've stayed above that fray. They never get called into really the adjustment talk that seemingly every other team does during the playoffs. So I'm most excited to see if Monty Williams has kind of the courage to stick with what the Suns have been doing to a T exactly, or does he start making some switches? That's good, and that's very very connected to what I'm looking forward to, which is pretty blunt. Just how can the Suns slow down Giannis and Dendekumpo? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I, that's that's really what I'm getting at. Uh, yeah. Right. Like So a couple quick numbers for Giannis. He was 4 for 5 from the restricted area in Game 1. He was 9 for 10 
in the restricted area in game two. He was 13 for 13 in the restricted area in game three. So not only is he just getting better and better as the series progresses at the area of the floor where he's just known to dominate, but for those counting at home, that's 26 for 28 shooting in a zone that when you get to this level and this deep in the season, like the defense's number one focus is preventing shots at the basket. And he's just like crippling them at the basket. So I watch rewatched all of Giannis's baskets um, um, period uh, before we started recording and was just looking for different ways that Phoenix can try to slow this guy down. And, it's honestly, my conclusion is it's like it's up to Giannis how successful he is, frankly. Like, his offense is not, I'm going to dribble the ball up here and I'm going to run pick and roll and I'm going to let you double me out here. I'm going to let you trap me or I'm going to f- let you force me to shoot a three or shoot a pull-up jumper. Like, he switches it up so much with um, the screens and the dives and where he's setting those screens and how he's diving um, has been really good, and I, I credit Bud for some of those well-designed plays where he's on the side of the floor, and they clear the corner, so there can't be any strong side help. So you know, once Pat Connaughton or, or Drew or Chris Middleton turns middle, it's either they're going to get a lay a wide open layup, or whoever's supposed to be guarding Giannis has to slide over and take that away, and then Giannis is just wide open for a dunk, and we saw that like three or four times in Game Three, um, and. Beyond that, he's just like physically the most imposing player in the game. So when he wants to go get an offensive rebound and put it back, he can seemingly do that at will. It's just a matter of how tired are you. Um, He's got these like his hands on the roll and his hands in traffic have been tremendous, like plays that you would think are going to be turnovers and or pick sixes heading the other way. He corrals and then turns into and ones at the basket. And when he's committed in the post, those face-up opportunities, he's just so quick. And his handle looks like, honestly, I, I I push back a little bit when people say that he's so much better now than he was like three weeks ago or whatever. I don't think that's true. Um, I just think that he's completely cut out. Not completely, but he's not looking for that, that wide open three that is being mm-hmm. given to him and He's just been smarter, I think, slightly bit. I don't think the skill has improved or anything like that. But he's been smarter. He's been more engaged. And he's been, frankly, one of the most dominant players in the finals that we have ever seen. Yeah, it's almost like he's been the most impressive player in the series. Uh, <laughs> it is uh, it is going to be very interesting to see what the Suns true to try to slow him down. I do think the pick and roll, you're almost helpless there. We've been calling for Giannis as a screener for so long because we know how dominant he could be in that role to me the big area is just those face-up moments that he gets I don't I understand that he's really good at passing out of it and he's just not going to let you come trap him quickly I think they're going to have to do work earlier in the shot clock they can't let him get position um on, on the blocks and just let him get to his face-up game there has to be more work done early in the shot clock and I do think that they have to think about you know harder doubles or or something to just kind of throw him off his rhythm I know he doesn't he doesn't pound the ball, but he has that moment when he faces up where there is that slight pause that where he's figuring out how exactly he's going to go about this. And I think the Suns have to make him feel more uncomfortable in those scenarios specifically, at least a little bit, just 
even if it's not letting him get in the rhythm, I think right now they've been content letting him go one-on-one and saying, we'll foul him if it gets really bad. But if he's hitting his free throws, that's not going to work. So, I mean, another part of this is what if the free throw shooting goes back into the tank, which I don't think is going to happen, but but none of us really know, you know, what the secret's been for him the last couple games where he's looked competent at the line. So I, I, to me, it's just making him feel more uncomfortable whenever he does have the ball and he's facing up and he's one-on-one, et cetera. The Suns were talking about building a wall in, you know, in their post-game press conferences last night. The problem is he's not doing that Giannis thing anymore where he stands at the top of the key and just kind mm-hmm. of waits for the defense to load up. So I don't know how plausible that is either. Right, and there's also those plays where when Giannis is the ball handler, they'll just bring up who he wants to hunt, a la LeBron and Kyrie, where Kyrie would set those ball screens. I mean, LeBron does it with anyone, but he had the most success with Kyrie, and they're doing that with um, Mikhail Bridges quite a bit, where um, Chris Middleton will come set up the flat screen, and there was one play where Chris Middleton set the screen and then flared out, um, behind the three-point line, and he looked very upset when Giannis did not pass him the ball because he was <laughs> yes, wide open. Yeah. But he's just kind of like, like Giannis is just like, I have Mikael Bridges on me, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to do this quick little step through, get to the rim, and make this like lefty layup, and there's really nothing anyone can do to stop me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, do you think we're going to see like what we've seen from Giannis in games two and three is that sustainable going forward i think you and i are probably on the same page with this answer but i mean i don't know i don't know that he's putting up 40 points every night but i don't Mm -hmm. ayton is obviously a good defender the problem is like what happened in game three you're risking foul trouble every minute he's on Giannis. i think Giannis is going to continue to be a monster for the rest of the series i i I don't know if he's going to put up 40 points every night but I, I think he's he's unlocked something for himself right now, and I'm I'm pretty confident in him putting up big games the rest of the way. Yeah, he's just been an absolute monster. Um, shout out to Giannis if he's the best player in the series at this margin. I mean, Bucks and six is not a wild statement to make. Oh, um, I'm still you know. Are you I'm making not, the statement, or are you no, just mentioning no. it? No, I don't like. I'm not backing off my prediction. I, I still have okay. Suns and Six, even okay. though I made that before. Um, I th- thought that Giannis was not going to play a second in this series. But I picked Suns and Five because I thought Giannis was going to miss the first two <laughs> games at least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to HelpMyGamblingProblem.org for free confidential services. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. 
I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. So speaking of Giannis... Uh, you and I put together this little list of, you know, each of us um, have our five best finals performances that we've ever witnessed in, not in person, just in our lives, I guess, with our own two eyes. And before we start, I just want to once more remind all of our wonderful listeners to please email us in all of your great questions and thoughts and insights to openfloormail at gmail.com. That's openfloormail at gmail.com. So send us your bro, finals list too. I want to hear from other people. Yes. I'm sure everyone has great, you know, finals memories that they want to share. So I'd love to know other people's favorite fi- right. finals performances. And when, when Roe starts waxing about um, Mario Chalmers and um, his dead eye corner threes and all that and the, the spunky. Listen, listen. When LeBron James was cramping up, you know, <laughs> desperate for some Gatorade, Powerade, whatever he's sponsoring these days, who was there in game four against Oklahoma City? Mario Chalmers. The Gatorade. Mario <laughs> Chalmers. Okay? Yes, sure. Okay, so you you go first, and this is do you are we doing this in any particular order? I did not specify in the outline. I, so my, I, I minus had thought about order. I had thought about listing it um, five to one, but I'm not going to do that because I I okay. got two in the weeds on the ranking. Also, one more Mario Chalmers point for those of you who okay, listened to great. the to the Perfect. bonus episode with Chris Bosch. Um, we did like low key discover that Mario Chalmers was maybe the Heat's second best player in Game Six of the 2013 finals. I'm not joking. I wish I was joking, but he was that important in that game. Okay. <sighs> wow. Uh, Chris said it. Don't look at me. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I have to go with, you know, one that's near and dear to my heart. Obviously I'm going to go with Dwayne Wade in, in game three of the 2006 NBA finals. Um, 42 points, 13 rebounds, I think two assists, the Heat were down 13 with around six and a half minutes to go. You know, he famously tells Pat Riley and his teammates in the huddle, I'm not going out like this. Storms back, you know, killing himself to get to the free throw line down the stretch of that game. Uh, in all seriousness, I, I know that that's like a controversial final, and a lot of people outside of Miami hate it. Uh, the man, what was he supposed to do? Tell the refs, don't give me that foul call? Uh, it really was, I thought, an ultimate put-your-team-on-your-back performance. You look at some of the teammates he had in that series now, Antoine Walker, a very old Gary Payton. You could make a case. I love that team. I I, I love that team. It's a weird team. Of all the finals teams in the last 21 years, it's by far the strangest. I think even more strange than the 2011 Mavs. Like Shaq was 
Shaq struggled a lot. I mean, I think part of that was Dallas made it such a point. We're not going to let Shaq have a huge finals, but like Shaq was not great in that series. I think Udonis was in many ways more important than Shaq in that series because of, you know, defending Dirk. Uh, but yeah, D Wade in that game three, I, I think that was when he truly, truly took his game uh, to another level. So yes, there is a little bit of controversy surrounding that series, <laughs> and all of our all of our Mavs fans um, listeners will. I'm sorry, hopefully Mavs fans. F- just flood openfloormail@gmail.com with your 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 hate for Rohan. Listen, pick if there. it makes Mavs fans feel any better, there's no way that 06 win for the Heat. Felt anywhere near as good as that 2011 win for the Mavs. In my opinion, if you're a Mavs fan, that loss should have been worth it just because of the extra juice it gave your 2011 win. That's just my two cents. Okay, well, some of us would like two championships instead of one, and I think that the Dallas Mavericks. But you, I, I don't think camp. you can. I don't think you can say that they win 2011 if they win 2006 so you think you think Dirk is just fat after that and he's like I got my I got my ring and we're just what gonna happened, pack it up from here what happened after 2011 Mike Mark Cuban was pretty much <laughs> packed it up anyway okay. so uh another one of my picks is actually Giannis's game what are you, two. You're, what oh, I thought I was gonna on? run down my whole list I thought I was gonna run down what my I, whole list no, you already spoiled. We're gonna go back and forth, like gentlemen okay. here. But <laughs> okay, no, I let's talk. It. But let's no. Now that you brought it up, we'll, let's quickly touch on Giannis's. Which this was last night's game. I'm assuming. I'm actually gonna go with game two, even though they okay. lost the, the contrarian you know, pick. Well, no, the 20 ahead. points in one quarter. Yes. Here's what I'd say about that game, and I, that was one I was fortunate to see in person. So that's really coloring my opinion here. Mm-hmm. The physicality he played with and the fact that he still didn't even look like someone who could fully move side to side. It still didn't look like his knee was always there. The fact that his teammates were like didn't have it, you know, and he really I I just was so blown away. I remember I kept looking at the other people um, in the media row just being like, I can't believe this. Like, I can't believe this. I, you know, because in game one, he looked a little shaky on that knee. And, you know, he only played 35 minutes. It looked like maybe that was going to be the best he could do in the series. And I just was so blown away by the physicality of that performance. And, you know, doing it on the road with none of your teammates' shots falling in such a hostile environment, I thought was really, really an incredible performance. So it was, I mean, that was one of the better quarters of basketball and it didn't, maybe it didn't seem that way. It didn't seem so dominant because of just the scoreboard um, where, I mean, they were up double digits. The Suns were up like double mm-hmm. digits for most of that. And I don't know. I, I think double digits I... are kind of whatever in today's NBA, but, um, but I think that I mean, that, take that your could... pick, take your pick game two or three. I mean, I think both. Well, I'll just say three because not just because of the win, but because it came after game two where you just exerted all that energy. And what happened was like you like the the stakes of game three, I feel, were a lot higher, whereas you're Mm -hmm. at home. And if you don't come out and have this epic performance, 
There's a good reason in Giannis has said, like, you should think that you'll lose and then your your season's basically over. You're going to mm-hmm. go down 0-3. So for him to kind of back that up, I thought it was just, like, super-duper impressive. And granted, his teammates did play better. Granted, Aiton was in foul trouble. But, I mean, those fouls were because of Giannis, so I'm not going to, yeah. like, discredit Giannis sure. at all. Um, and Scott Foster, <laughs> LOL. Sure, sure. <laughs> yes, great, wonderful. I just thought it was... <laughs> I'm not, I don't buy into any ref conspiracies or anything like that. I just laughed when I saw that Scott Foster was refing game three, knowing that Chris Paul is not even hiding his disdain for him in press conferences anymore. It, it felt like a little bit of a troll. It was just funny. It was just funny. Yeah, we can, you know, I'll just say real quick, like, what do people expect? He's not, he was, he's a playoff referee. He's yeah, I most, agree. I he's agree. Gonna, he's going to ref in the finals. He like, is. Um, he is. He was always going to ref in this series. And I think he's a perfectly fine ref. And I think if anything, the league needs to step in and be like, Chris, you mm-hmm. can't be going after officials personally in your postgame press conferences. It's not a good look for anyone involved. Also, I don't think it helps him. And when yeah, I say him, agreed. I mean Chris Paul. Agreed. Um, agreed. Okay, so... My first one, and this is actually the first game that came to my head besides Giannis's just because of recency bias, but, and you're going to love this, Ro, because it's about your boy, uh, Jimmy Butler's game three in the 2020 finals. Also on my 45, 45 minutes, 40 points, 20 shots, 13 assists, 11 rebounds, two steals, two blocks. He's guarding LeBron. For, for most every of minute the he's game. on the floor, practically, yeah. yeah. And he he didn't even attempt a three. So just like contextualizing this, like if you were to look at this box score in 50 years, I, I just – you'd look, think there was a mistake somewhere. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't compute. Eventually, Jimmy obviously kind of ran out of gas when they moved Anthony Davis onto him, which just speaks to how absurd Jimmy was in that series. But game three, I thought, I mean, there were some other really good performances out of him in that series. But game three, down 0-2, Bam out, Goran out. They started Myers Leonard at center in that game. That is... He who shall not be mentioned. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I could talk about that game alone for a couple hours. It's one of my favorite favorite games of all time in NBA history as an NBA fan. And it was an inspiring effort. I remember I talked to Goran Dragic before this season for the Jimmy Butler story I wrote for our NBA preview issue. And Goran was like, no disrespect to LeBron. I thought Jimmy was by far the best player on the floor that night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he mentioned, yeah, he had to guard LeBron on one end. And you talk about like all time finals burdens. You know, I wrote about this, after game two, it was like Giannis is going to as in danger of going down as one of those stars who had a dominant finals performance, but just didn't get enough from his supporting cast. And the thing is, it's like Giannis's two best co-stars are healthy. They're just having bad series. Usually it's like when guys are injured, hurt, whatever. I mean, for Jimmy to do that with his next two best players, the Heat's leading scorer in the playoffs was Goran Dragic. Uh, it was really, really... Uh, an incredible, like deep. It was one of the more inspiring performances, I think, in recent NBA history. And obviously, there's the iconic image of him kind of gas leaning over the uh, rail, like under the hoop. And yeah, he really, really, really left it all out there. And it was very cool. Very, I'm glad that he got to have that performance on that stage. It was, you know, people talk about legacy, this, whatever. 
that was definitely a, a game on a stage that just will forever alter how he's mm-hmm. perceived, frankly. Yeah, it's true. And I've always thought he was a great player. Um, always thought he was top 12, at least I'll put him top 12. I think it's fair league. to say nobody thought he had that in him. I don't think anybody thought he had that in him. Like, you know, maybe on any given night in the regular season, uh, with the with the guys that were out, with the competition he was facing, the number of Hall of Famers on the Lakers side, I I don't like you said. I think it it put his name into a different category with that one game. To do it as efficiently against mm-hmm. the best defense, down o two in the bubble, you think back to like LeBron in 2000, the 2015 finals where he's down Kyrie and Kevin Love and he's dragging Matthew Della Vadova and I forget Tristan Thompson, whoever else was on that team. He's dragging them against the Golden State Warriors and just having epic performances, but he was not efficient mm-hmm. at least. And like Jimmy was just getting to the free throw line, hitting his free throws, uh, 14 for 20 from the floor, just remarkable shot making out of him. Tough shots too. Uh, so do you want to go, row and give your next one? Or do you want me to kind of double up so that we're, you, we're tied? You can double up so that we're tied. I know that I, I stepped on your toes, so you can double up. All right, so I'm totally cheating with this. Um, Sounds about but right. I, yeah, I'm sorry. But I have LeBron's games five and six of the 2016 okay, I, I almost did something similar. I ended up picking game five, personally, just because the yeah. the numbers were a little more eye-popping and that game was on the road, although there was no Draymond. But either one of those – I mean, you could pick five, six, or seven. It doesn't matter. All those games were absolutely legendary. Legendary. I mean, that's a great word for it. And I will literally it- tell my kids about the 2016 finals. Oh, I mean, that's top – yeah, that's a different conversation. That's top three finals of our lives, yeah. top two finals of our lives. I don't think anything will ever be topped except, of course, the 2008 <laughs> finals, which were just a great – just a, an, an orgasm of wonderful basketball yeah, yeah. all the way around. Um, but LeBron had 82 points in these two games. Both games, do or die. They're down 3-1. Everyone knows the story by now. And, and Kyrie <laughs> also was there doing the same thing, but – no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. There's not enough content, literature, whatever you want to call it, I can consume about the 2016 finals because it, it is endlessly fascinating to me. Just an absolute hanging on a thread series. I remember at SI, we ran something after the first two games because the Cavs were getting killed. Like, is this one of the worst teams LeBron has had? In the finals, it was the the disparity was that huge between the two teams. Man, talk about like legacies being changed. I think the 2016 finals is the one that even put LeBron over the top. I don't think the 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 GOAT conversation was going to be credible ever if not for that series. And it was just massive. Like it was breathtaking. I mean. The freaking block, like, is that the is the block not like the most exciting play you've ever seen in your life? The block, it's just one of those plays where you know where you were when you saw yes. it, which are my favorite yes. types of plays. Yes. Like, I know, I know exactly where I was when Ray Allen hit that three, waking up my wife in her one bedroom Santa Monica apartment, <laughs> almost getting thrown out into the yeah. hallway before I told her that no wait, um, we have to, I have to continue to watch. I'm sorry. 
Um, and it's just like there's historic moments. That's what it is. Yeah. And you, I think I wrote down in my notes here um, that game six in Boston of the Eastern Conference Finals when he was with Miami, that's the most pivotal game of his career and mm. maybe the best the best single playoff performance. Mm. But those back-to-back 41-point games were like career-defining in yes, a sense. exactly, and e- exactly. Even when he talks about it, he puts himself – he called himself – the greatest player of all time yeah. because he won the title with Cleveland and yeah. those two performances, I think above all else with their back against the wall, trying to do the impossible. Um, that's just what makes them that. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, it's goat stuff. There's really nothing yeah. else to say about so, it. So I have only one game left on my list now because I had the Jimmy one, I had LeBron game five, I had Giannis and I had D Wade. It's another LeBron one. And I think this is actually the best game I've ever seen LeBron James play. And it's game one of the 2018 NBA Finals. 51 points, eight rebounds, eight assists, 48 minutes. Uh, I have the shooting right here. 19 of 32 from the field, three of seven from three. 51 points on 32 shots, man. 10 of 11 from the free throw line. Uh, One steal, one block. This is the J.R. Smith game. I remember, it's funny, I remember walking around that day, and this was the second time they were about to face KD in the finals, and he didn't have Kyrie this time. I remember telling a friend, literally these were my exact words, and I was like, maybe if LeBron scores 50 points, they have a chance. And that's literally what he did. I've never seen a player will his team. The entire game I remember feeling like, okay, this is the moment where Golden State's going to pull away and go on one of those big runs, right? And LeBron just never let it happen. He never. Let it, he only sat for two minutes. I I just think it was the most control in control he's ever been of a game in his life, and we don't have to relitigate what it meant when Durant signed with the Warriors, etc. Oh, why isn't LeBron held to a higher standard in those series? Whatever, whatever, whatever. That those were not two evenly matched teams. Okay, that was one of the most unevenly matched finals matchups of probably the last thirty years. And and we all know that if the Celtics advanced to that finals, um, <laughs> would have been a total. Terry Rozier just would have taken over, and we would have been having right. a different conversation right. right now. But but I digress. I just thought it um, was a. And, and I remember telling someone because I had written after the game, and I actually kind of regret this piece. But I was like, I'll never forgive J.R. Smith for what happened at, at that blunder. And I was trying to explain to a friend why I felt so strongly about it. And you could say this about any NBA player; it's not just LeBron, but. Would you know the like sacrifices the LeBrons, the Stephs, the Durants, the Jimmies make in their lives to be in a position, you know, LeBron is spending however many millions of dollars a year on his body so that he can play 48 minutes in a finals game with, frankly, very little help from his teammates against an all-time team. That's why he does what he does. And it just felt like, Everything in his life came to fruition in that game. And there was a very controversial block charge call. The reason we can review block charges now, I believe, happened at the end of that game uh, where he gets called for a blocking foul on Durant, uh, you know, really pivotal moment in the last couple of minutes. Yeah, I just thought it was – I think that is actually the best game he's ever played. 
yeah, I was at that game at Oracle. Uh, it was great. Afterwards, we got the uh, the Be Better Tomorrow, mm-hmm. which is if I could only tattoo three words on my body, <laughs> be, be Better Tomorrow. Sitting in that press conference, were you at that game? I was no? not. I was not. Yeah, sitting in that press conference, uh, the person who asked the question that led to that response was sitting directly in front of me. Okay. So I'm sitting there, and LeBron, like, it, it looks, looks like he's was, looking at me. We all know who that person is, by the way. And let's just say he's made a career out of asking those sort of questions. And you, sure, could, see Le- yeah. you could see LeBron getting annoyed <laughs> very quickly. Yeah, so, but just <laughs> LeBron, he had the sunglasses on. Um, he had the suit, the gray suit. I'll just never forget him walking out like head, like chin up and just be better tomorrow. See you later. It was just like, I, this person is not of the same species as me. Um, that was a great game and George Hill should have made that free throw and yeah, they should have won and history might be different. That game, me and Chris discussed when we talked about the greatest games that we've ever seen, period. Uh, just nothing really more to say about it. It's stupendous basketball dominant basketball against one of the greatest defenses of all time he was a man among boys um okay so my i got two here and i'm just gonna only i'm only gonna give one i'm splitting hairs a little bit between these two but i know that you called me what's my nickname on this particular program the fence fence, yeah yeah. so i don't want to be the fence so I'm, i'm picking one um two games later kevin durant Scored 43 on 23 shots with a true shooting percentage. I don't want to get this wrong, so I'm going to quickly double check. But a true shooting percentage of 82.4. And, of course, this was the game where they're up three. Um, The Warriors are up three with about a minute 10 left. And... KD comes down in Cleveland. Crowd is going. One of the loudest buildings I've ever been in, and that's because they pipe in an artificial noise. But um, KD pulls up from like 33, 34 feet, and everyone in the building was just like, oh, this is going in the basket. And it went in the basket. And I think that he gets criticized or maybe – I don't want to say he gets criticized, but I think that 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 singular performance is overlooked because it happened in a series where everyone thought the Warriors were going to romp. And um, obviously he's surrounded by Steph, he's surrounded by Clay, surrounded by Draymond. But that was a very competitive basketball game against LeBron just firing on all cylinders and KD came and he played and he balled out and it was like one of the three or four I or believe, five greatest performances of his of his career. I believe a wise man once told me on this podcast that impressive performances are relative to expectations. And yeah, like you said, the problem with that series, the problem with, you know, the way we look at Durant is, you know, those two finals relative to expectations. It just... You know, I don't think anyone expected a different outcome. And that is why it can be hard to sometimes put some of the games he had and some of the performances he had in those two series in the proper context because it felt like there was such little resistance. But, I mean, he was obviously spectacular in those two series. There's a reason why he won those finals MVPs. And that that three is probably the defining shot of his career. 
you know, LeBron backpedaling and giving him way too much space. And that to me just summed up like Kevin Durant is like, he just doesn't care. Like he doesn't have time for narratives. He doesn't care about building his own myth. Like he just hoops, man. And it's like, yeah, he doesn't have his own media company or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the boardroom is a show about business. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I just think that he, I don't think I think he he's not invested in like oh I I need to like my career needs to be characterized by like the struggle and overcoming you know X Y Z and look at what I did by it's just I'm just that good and it, it doesn't really matter. Well said, Rohan. Well said. So like I guess that like that sums up our lists, and I would really appreciate it if you guys uh, hit us up and. Let us know what we got right, what we got wrong. Um, Rohan Mavs and I are fans, not. fans, I'm sorry. I just want to say your 2011 win, incredible. And I think I just stand by it. You know, sometimes uh, when you – sometimes losing first and then winning later, that, that makes it that much more special. So at least you have that, you know. Wouldn't yeah, you have rather won the 2011 <laughs> one than the 2006 one, Mike? Come on. Anywho, uh, we are too young to, or at least I don't want to speak for Rohan, even though I know how old he is, um, <laughs> but we are too young to really remember um, in our mind's eye some of the performances from like Charles Barkley in the 93 finals or any Michael Jordan performance. You can go down the list. There's just too many. Even like, you know, I remember watching Shaq for right, sure. But, but you not- couldn't contextualize it the way we can now. I agree. It probably wasn't until like '05 when I really was starting to recognize, like, wow, like this is a another level that these guys are going to, et cetera. Absolutely. So please let us know what we what we screwed up and what you guys think is is the correct reading of history and what the top five finals performances uh, should be. Please e- send those emails to openfloormail at gmail dot com. Openfloormail at gmail dot com. Uh, Rohan, that's going to do it for our show today. You and I will be back next week. Uh, Chris Herring and I will be back later this week. Um, Until then, please keep those emails coming. We're really enjoying them. Um, Everybody stay safe and everybody continue to enjoy the NBA Finals. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroesfilm.com to get tickets now. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. What's out there is unknown. 
So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you gotta get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there, way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals, and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. 